Did, did I? Are we, is this thing on? Did I mention that we have media signups at your table there? Um, for anybody that wants to join the media team, because uh, no, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. You guys are not fired at the back. It's okay. Uh, so, post prom Sunday, the Sunday when all the real Christians show up <laughs> in church. Um, you know, I spoke at the junior high service uh, before this one and had to do like a message for them and then a message for you guys because Tim's out of town with the Pine Cove. The Pine Cove crew, uh, junior high kids, went to Pine Cove. So, um, uh, so, so last night, um, I, I'm, ne- I'm never really teaching junior high at one hour than high school at a different hour. So I was a little on edge when I set my alarm, like making sure I got the alarm clock set correctly. And then, um, so last night I had this dream um, while I'm sleeping, of course. And, uh, and um, I dreamed that I missed my alarm and that I missed the junior high service altogether and then in the dream, I kept dreaming at this point, in the dream, um, I went to Tim on Monday, tomorrow, and I was like, hey man, I'm really sorry, but I totally botched it. I didn't even show up to junior high because I overslept, and he was so angry with me in the dream that he just like turned around and like walked away. That was how he treated me in the dream. So my question to you guys this morning is, see now I'm kind of ticked at Tim, I'm mad at Tim because of what happened in the dream last night. Um, how he treated me. So my question to you is, am I allowed to be upset with someone over what happens in a dream? Is that okay? No? No. How many say yes? You can be upset. Do it. Do it. Everyone else says no? Hey, hey I, I think I'm going to go with those that are upset. That that I, I want to be upset with Tim, so this is the way it's going to play out. So, um, so when he gets back, it's going to be on like Donkey Kong, all right? It's an old video game. Be quiet. It doesn't mean that I'm old. Do you know what Pac-Man is? Frogger? Okay, so I'm not totally off base. See, I was, I was raised in an era when, uh, when, when video games are very simple. It was like just a stick and a button. That's all I can do. I can't do anything else. I can't, I can't do those complicated things. So um, turn to Judges chapter 17. Judges 17. Now, how many of you guys have seen the Broadway show Wicked? Raise your hand. I'm surprised that, okay, wait, let me ask it again. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. No, no, just seen it somewhere. Not Broadway, but just seen it somewhere. Uh, Raise your hand if you've seen Wicked. Because I'm suspecting that um, there might be some guys in there that don't want to admit they saw a Broadway show and liked it. So, is is that possible? So, so the, okay, you can put your hands down now. So the show Wicked um, is, is the one Broadway show that guys are allowed to say they like. Now, see, I'm not like a big Broadway person. I don't, I don't go and see all this stuff. But um, once you're married, you can see stuff like that with your wife, and it's cool. Like, people are like, yeah, it's cool. You went with your wife. If you're like a single guy, you're like, hey, guys, let's go see Wicked. And be like, ah, that's not going to be a guy thing to do. So, um... So if you've seen it, good for you, but I saw it in New York City twice now, and, uh, and I'm not trying to brag, I'm just saying, but I um, saw it in New York City twice, and it was really cool, but I went into it not knowing anything about it except the green face, because that's in the logo. And so I knew it had a green face in it, I just didn't know what it was about, really. I knew it was about the Wizard of Oz, but not really, like, the details of it. 
And that was intentional because I didn't want to find out what was, what was going to happen, right? I want to know the, I want to be surprised. And it was really cool because I didn't even know that the whole thing was like a prequel to uh, The Wizard of Oz. I had no idea. And so during the show, I wasn't trying to guess like who's the tin man going to be or who's the, the, um, the cowardly lion going to be. I just let it play out. And it was like, oh, that's how the tin man became the tin man. Oh, that's how the lion became who he was, right? And so it was a prequel to The Wizard of Oz, a story that almost all of us know because you've seen it a hundred times. Um, but it's a prequel to that story. So um, I love prequel type movies because they always show you these like other angles and, and how someone became a certain character in the movie that you came to like as a kid. And so this section we're looking at today in Judges is actually a bit of a prequel to the book of Judges. Now you might ask the question, well, why is it at the end of the book? I can't answer that question for you. But when I read this week um, a certain uh, commentary, it said this is actually may have happened before the rest of the book of Judges took place. So this is kind of a prequel to the book of Judges. So looking at Judges chapter 17. And this kind of gives you an, a, a, a picture into the way Israel was um, before Judges played out. Before you hear names like Samson and Delilah and names like Gideon and people like that, this, this story is one that may have happened earlier in, the, in history and it shows us how the downward spiral for them began as a nation. So you may not recognize names, places, events in this story. In fact, I've read through the Bible a bunch of times, and I don't recall reading this story today, right? It's one of those that you just don't really remember, um, partly because there's no mention of God in this story today. There's no resolution. There's no good ending to the story. And to me, it's a picture, listen, it's a picture of what things might be like without God, without him. So look at Judges 17. We're going to look in verses uh, 1 to 13 today. It says, There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse. I love that line. And also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. So there's this guy named Micah. And like most people, Micah has a mother. And his mother has a lot of silver. And 1,100 pieces to be exact. And Micah goes and steals the silver from her, apparently. And then the mother utters a curse, which... You probably would do as well if someone stole that much silver from you, right? And he returns the silver, or it says he admits to taking the silver from her. So here's the question I want to ask you. Is Micah a good dude or a bad dude? You say, he's a bad dude, raise your hand. Bad dude. Bad dude. Is he a good dude? Raise your hand. You're like, you guys are in the middle, right? Well, you're, you're right to be in the middle because... From the story, we could say, okay, the dude is a lying, thieving criminal, but the good news is he admits it, right? He admits who he is and admits that he took the money. So we have some good, we have some bad, but I'm going to tell you that um, I want to ask you this question. What, what is a really important item to you, all right? 
Just throw out something that might be really important to you. An item in life. What's that? Okay, the Bible. Like, get, get, can you get more materialistic than that, please? I don't know. Maybe something like this, something like that. There's always the guy at the back who's like trying to be spiritual, and I'm like, no, I don't want you being spiritual for this question, okay? Just say iPhone, because I have it up here on the stage. It's easy reference. So let's just say, um, let's say your friend takes your iPhone from you and, you know, does something mean, like changes it, it to like Mandarin Chinese language or something like that, and you can no longer understand what's on your text messages. Let's just say that happens to you. And, uh, and you're like looking for your cell phone for, for weeks and months. Then your friend finally shows up and goes, hey, I got some bad news. Um, I took your cell phone. But there's good news. Here it is, right? And they give it back to you. It's like you're going to feel a bit conflicted towards that person, right? Like it's not like the, the, the good news outweighs the bad news, right? There's a bit of a mixed feeling you're going to have about that. You're going to be like, well, I've been looking for that for months. I bought a new iPhone already. Thanks a lot. I spent 400 bucks on that, right? And so you're going to have some mixed feelings about that situation. It's not like the good behavior he displayed by giving it back to you outweighs the bad behavior by taking your iPhone. And so I want you to listen to this. I want you to watch what happens here when, uh, when this mom finds out about this. So the curse... This mom utters a curse. Now, this would not be the same kind of curse that you and I are thinking about. Um, we all know certain words that would be considered curse words. There's a, probably the top five in our vocabulary. And uh, this would not be her saying one of those words in their language back then. Um, this is not that kind of curse. What this would be would be her uttering like a pagan curse, almost like a voodoo curse, right? Like calling down a pagan voodoo-type curse on whoever took her money, right? And so even though she is an Israelite, someone who believes in Yahweh, the God of Israel, she still has no trouble calling down like a pagan curse on someone's head who stole her money. She's upset about it. And so this is what she does to the person that did this to her. Now, if they're living in the same house, which I assume they are because they're mother and son, that means her son may have heard her utter that curse over him, right? And so we can assume, maybe, that Micah is returning the money for what reason? Why do you think? Yeah, he doesn't like being cursed. He's afraid. He's like, ooh, she bust the voodoo out on me. I better return this back to her, right? Like, he's a little scared about this curse because of, 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 of what she said. And so after... He admits to being a thief. I want you to see what her reaction is. Look at the next part of the passage. It says, And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. Now, isn't this strange? This is strange, isn't it? Like you've got, you just found out your son is a lying, thieving criminal. And you say, Blessed be my son by the Lord, right? Like that's how she responds to to this situation. So I want to get this straight. Okay, listen. So one minute she's like stabbing a voodoo doll with needles, calling a pagan curse, oh, never stole her money. The next minute she's blessing him in Jesus' name. Okay, I want you to picture this. This is kind of weird. And 
I want you to see what this shows about this family because a mother who could just totally overlook her son's actions in this situation and just go from like uttering a pagan curse to her son, not knowing it's him, to then blessing him in the name of God that quickly, this shows no depth, no substance, no self-examination, no question about like, let's talk about your heart, why you did this, what was your motive, like none of this, none of this depth we don't see in this family. We see none of that. We see no self-examination, we see no, we see nothing. And so what I think, what I think happens in, in some of our lives, listen, is that some people live life just on the surface, right? Like we, we do things, there's a consequence, we don't ever think about the deeper stuff that's going on inside of our hearts. We don't ever think about the motives, why did I do that, why did I respond that way in that situation? Why did I, on that date, take advantage of that girl or that guy? Like, we don't think about those kinds of things, right? Like, we don't, we don't look at our lives and go, I want to understand the depths of my own sin. Because no one wants to know that. We don't ever want to know the depths of our own sin, do we? That's the hard stuff. Like, that's the hard stuff. The, the easy stuff is to say, okay, I took this money. Here, here it is back. I don't want to be cursed that's, that's the easy stuff, right? Living life on the surface and never getting beneath that to the deeper meanings, the deeper motivations, the deeper issues that are really the roots of the behavior. And this is how many of us, I think, live our lives. We live life on the surface and that's it. Just responding to behaviors and try to push things aside and pretend like they're not there. And so when this woman gets the money back, she just blesses him. There's no introspection. There's no examination about why, what's in his heart, none of that. She has none of that with her son. You know, whenever my son or daughter uh, needs some punishment, which, which happens a lot, actually, a lot more than I wish it did. But, um, in fact, yesterday, Landon, it's funny how he thinks, but uh, we're driving in the car somewhere, and he goes, he's like, hey, Daddy. He's in the back seat, and he goes, hey, Daddy, I just realized that I haven't gotten, I didn't get a spank in the entire month of March. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I didn't know you were keeping track, right? And that's just how he can think. But we, um, whenever we punish our kids, some of you guys are like, you spank your kids? Okay, different sermon, different sermon. Um, whenever we punish our kids, listen, it's hard when they're three and six. It's hard to have that heart conversation like, okay, before I'm going to give you a spanking, we've got to talk about some stuff, you know, and we try to talk about like, okay, why you did this to your sister, why you did this to um, a friend or whatever it is. And it's hard because as parents, we've got to understand that if we just deal with behaviors and that's it, that's not going to go anywhere. They're just going to learn real quick that, okay, if I don't want to have punishment, I'm just not going to do this. Like, they don't understand the motives of their own heart and what's really in play in their sinful nature. If they don't understand that, they're never going to learn to really repent. Because I've said this before from the stage, that I think any sin that you and I commit externally, there is always an internal sin in play happening inside our hearts that that sin grew out of. Right? 
whether it's coveting, whether it's lust, whatever is happening, and you've got to understand as, as Christians that you can't just play the game of the surface level behavior stuff and that's it. You've got to look deeper than that and ask God questions like, ask other Christians questions like, can you help me see the sins in my heart that are causing me to do these other kinds of behaviors? You've got, as a, as a Christian, you have got to begin to push deeper than that, understanding your own heart in a deeper way. And so Micah's mom, she utters this curse, and then a blessing. And if you think that's kind of crazy, I want you to see what happens in the next passage. Look at the next uh, passage here in verse, middle of verse 3. It says, and his mother said, now watch what she does. I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. So after he returns the money to her, she dedicates the money to God. Then she builds an idol with it. All right? You can see how messed up this family is. So she says, she goes to God. Just picture this. She goes to God and says, God, I'm so glad my money has come back to me. In fact, I'm so glad. I'm so thankful. I'm going to express my thanks by building an idol. And we're all like, what? You're, you're crazy, woman, right? You are, you're insane. I mean, this, here's the equivalent of what I just said. Listen, this would be like me or you getting a paycheck from your job, and you bow your knee to God, and you're like, God, thank you so much for this paycheck. I'm so thankful for this money. I'm so grateful that tonight... I'm going to get drunk with all my friends. Or it'd be like, God, thank you so much for this paycheck. I'm so thankful, I'm so grateful that tonight I'm going to spend this paycheck on pornography. Right? It's, it's just like, that's going to make my head explode to think about that. This is how illogical and crazy this family is in their thinking. And the weirdest part about it is that they have no clue. They're totally clueless about their spiritual ineptitude, right? So this woman shows her thanks to God by breaking his second commandment of creating an idol. I want to address this quickly. You know, why is it that God said to his people, do not make any kind of graven image? In Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, we see... This command in the Ten Commandments, he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. I want you to see this because you may not have caught this before, but God's command to not make an idol was not just don't make an idol of a calf and worship it. Or don't make an idol of a reptile and worship that. You know, worship me, I'm the true God. But what does it say? It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. 
So even if you get the idea that you want to make an image of God himself, heaven above, you are not to do that as my people. Now I want to just give you a a quick, I want to take a quick sort of verbal survey. Um, If you were going to make an image that represents the God that we serve, what image would you make? What would you create? Like just, I want you to shout out an answer, like what, try to stretch your brain for a second, what, what would you create to make an image of, of, that represents God and who he is? What image? The world? Okay. What else? It's really hard, isn't it, right? An old man looks like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. That's where all your minds went, I know, the old, the old man with the long white beard. But you see, my, you see my point, like what, what are you going to create that represents him? You can't create anything that represents him. So what God's point is, is that if you try to make anything that looks like me, it's going to fall short. It's going to fall short. It's not going to be like me. Make it like a golden calf. Well, I'm not a golden calf. Make it like Gandalf. Well, I'm not like Gandalf. Whatever you and I think up to make an image of God, even the God that we worship, it's going to fall short of who he really is. Any image that we make of him is going to limit who he is. And so God does not want his people thinking that he is anything like his creation. Any image for God would reveal a part of his nature, but then conceal another part of his nature. Whatever we think of, it's going to reveal part of who he is, but then conceal another part of who he is. In fact, Tim Keller, he says this. He says, worshiping God with images reveals an inward spirit which does not want to submit to God as he is, but which wants to pick and choose attributes in order to create a God who is palatable to us. And so the question is, how do we do this? Because sometimes... We, we all understand, we all know that the Bible says that we are made in God's image, but what happens with us is that we reverse the tables and we try to remake God in our image, don't we? We try to remake him and try to make it seem like, well, I'm going to make, remake God and fashion him in the way that I want him to be, right? We may not have a calf or a, a statue, but it's our way of trying to tame God, make him feel more like us. We make him in our image. I'll give you an example of this. How often have you heard someone say, you know, I just can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank, send people to hell, be against homosexuality, be against uh, sex before marriage. Um, I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. That is an example of us remaking God in our own image and we do it under the guise of grace. We do it and try to make God seem more, well, he's, you know, that kind of God, that God's too judgmental, that kind of God's too out there. We've got to make him seem more gracious, so I can't believe in a God who would be against that. I can't believe in a God who would be for that. But here's what we're really saying. Whenever we do that, here's what we're saying. We're saying that our culture doesn't like the idea of fill in the blank, and so we must get rid of it. Throw it in the trash. God can't be like that because that's not 
the kind of God that I want to worship. And so the areas I think we do this in the most, I want to put on the screen for you just areas that I think Christians can so easily compromise based on the cultural pressure that we're under. And I think one of the areas we compromise in is, um, there's five or six actually I have listed here, uh, Christians dating or marrying non-believers. And I want to be clear once again that I, I am not talking about how non-Christians behave here. I'm talking about we should expect non-Christians to act like non-Christians. We should not expect them to act like Christians. So I'm talking about how so-called Christians act. And I'm part of the church, part of church leadership. And almost weekly in this church, we hear of just someone, well, this marriage fall, fell apart or that marriage fell apart or this person's doing this. And look, we are a hospital for sinners. Like we're supposed to be a place where people come when they fall into sin. We want to be that kind of place. What I'm talking about, though, is Christians who are walking and living in a lifestyle of sin and have no repentance. That's what I'm referring to when I say this list of sins I'm talking about. We want this to be a place where people that are sinning and struggling with sin can come and get help. We'll walk with you through that. But these are the areas I think Christians can compromise based on the pressure in our culture. Christians dating or marrying non-believers. The second one is Christians living together before marriage. I can't tell you how often in this church we talk to people and we're like, hey, so you want to get married? That's great. Um, are you living together? And the answer is yes. A lot of the time in this church, the answer is yes. We've got to say, I can't do your wedding unless you're, you decide to move out for a while and, and live righteously in this area of your life. I'm not trying to judge. I'm just trying to say that we've got to have a standard of holiness here and we feel like we're shortchanging you as a church if we turn a blind eye to sin. We just are. We just are. The third, uh, sex before marriage. These are things that, you know, you want to assume everyone knows, understands, but um, everyone does not. Uh, fourthly, homosexuality. And uh, fifthly, our views on hell. I mean, hell's getting explained away like, you know, it's just a figment of our imagination. And then lastly, our view of the Bible. Is this really the inspired, inerrant word of God? Is, is this our authority? And so our culture is just pressing in these areas of our lives and our beliefs. And Christians, I mean, I expect non-Christians to not do these the right way, right? I expect that, right? But when the Christians start making these kinds of compromises, that's when there's real, real problems. Real problems. Tim Keller also says, when we remake God in our own image, we end up worshiping a comfortable God, but also a non-existent one. Whenever you and I try to remake God to represent us, we worship a God that doesn't even exist at that point. It's not even the real God anymore. We've so watered him down. I heard a preacher a long time ago say this. He said, if God is perfect and we are not, then at some point we should expect him to offend us. At some point, it's, if, I'm, if I'm not perfect, if I'm not holy and God's holy and perfect, then at some point I would expect him 
to rub me the wrong way, right? And for him to offend me and me not to like something that he says or does. At some point, that's going to happen. If the God of this Bible did everything just as my sinful flesh wants it to be done, then we can conclude that I've made God in my own image again, right? This is what's happened. Look at verse 5. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So not only does Micah have his own little shrine, but he also has his own little gods, now his own personal priest. He appoints his own son. Imagine that, my conversation with Landon. Landon, you're going to be my priest, right? And, okay, Daddy, sure, what, what do I have to do, right? And uh, put these really ugly robes on, right? So it's just, it, it, this is what he, he appoints his own son as his own priest. And um, priests were supposed to be from the tribe of Levi and descendants of Aaron, and this guy totally disregards that part of the law. And he just says, you know what? I want my own priest. Son, you're going to be my priest. It was a, the, the priest was supposed to serve in the tabernacle for the whole nation. He wants his own little personal priest, right? Not for the nation, but just for himself. And instead of following God's commands, Micah has his own little homemade religion. He decides, I'm going to have my own little Shrine, own little gods, own little personal priest. He just makes his own little homemade religion for himself. I think the way we see this happen today, uh, my wife Courtney, she has an aunt and an uncle who live in Corpus Christi, Texas. And, um, I mean, they, if you said, are you a Christian? They might say, yes, we are. But there's nothing in their lives that we would look at and say, yes, here's evidence of true faith because... The time that I've known them the last 12, 13 years or so, they've never really attended a church, never been part of the body of Christ. They've used words like, yeah, yeah, we believe in God. We believe in God. We believe there's a God, you know. Yeah, we're Christians. But they've used words like, we believe faith is a private thing. We believe that we don't have to go to church to be a Christian. We believe we don't have to um, do these kinds of things to be considered a believer in Christ. And what it is, it's really just homemade religion. It's really just, yeah, I'll, I'll disregard the fact that God says, do not forsake the gathering together of yourselves in Hebrews. I'll just disregard the fact that God has saved not just individuals, but he's saved a people called the church. I'll disregard that fact and still call myself a Christian. And what you have, though, is essentially just homemade Religion, I'll just kind of grab whatever I want and whatever God wants. I mean, forget about that. I'll just grab whatever I want because it's all about me in the first place anyway, right? And so Micah goes against God. The question is why. The verse tells us that it's right in his own eyes. He sees, he sees things. He goes, this is what I want. It's right in my own eyes. I'm going to take whatever I want. It's the same reason that you and I go against God because when we think about our walk with God, we care more about what we want, what we value, what we desire, than what God wants and what God desires. Can you imagine the chaos, listen, of this world if every single person on the face of the earth 
did what was right in their own eyes tomorrow. Just think about the chaos of this world if that was the case. This is playing out in the life of Micah, in the life of his mother, in the life of Israel. Just imagine what would take place in this world if that was the case. And this is what Micah does. He, he follows the laws he likes and he ignores the ones he doesn't like. It's homemade religion. I want to summarize for you the next uh, five verses, verses 7 to 12. Here's what happens. It says, A true Levite now comes to Ephraim, where Micah lives, and Micah's like, Oh, a true Levite. Priests are supposed to be Levites. I'm going to get this Levite to replace my son as the priest. So imagine that conversation, like, son, you're fired, right? You're fired as my priest. I'm going to have this guy, the Levite guy, he's going to be my my priest now. So this is what Micah does. And now a Levite, uh, Micah offers to pay um, this guy a salary to be his own personal priest. And so um, look at verse 13 now, verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And right there in that verse, you see his motive for the whole thing. He says, I know God's going to prosper me because I have this Levite as a priest. And so his whole goal along has been his own success, his own prosperity, his own glory, and his goal is to get God to do whatever he wants him to do. His goal is to get God to do whatever he, Micah, wants him, God, to do. That's his whole goal. And I hope that you should know by now that true faith in Jesus Christ, true faith in the God that you and I serve and worship, true faith in that God should lead to a reversal of that mindset. And it's, I want to worship him and have him use me as a vessel to do whatever he wants me to do. This is an example of true worship. And I think the, um, the thing that Micah struggles with, this homemade religion that I'm talking about, I think, man, this is so prevalent where you and I live here in Texas, the Bible Belt. This is like homemade religion central, I think where we live. Um, there's a neighbor I have named, uh, named Mike. He lives kind of around the corner from me. And I've talked to him several times. He kind of walks his dog a lot during the daytime and, and nighttime. So I, I see him out a lot. I've talked to him a lot. He's a nice guy. He's friendly. Um, but man, like, you know that person on your street that just takes Halloween a little too seriously? You know what I'm talking about? There's always that. Um, I mean, no one ever faults someone for taking Christmas like, lots of Christmas, no one's ever like, that guy with the Christmas lights, he's a creep, you know? Like, no one ever says that. But Halloween, if, ever, if, if the guy, like, goes all out for Halloween, everyone's like, that's a little creepy and weird, man. Like, you got too many statues and skeletons and stuff. You know, that's just scary. You're scaring the children of the neighborhood, right? Um, so this is Mike. Though he, he has, like, this guy pulls out an arsenal of stuff every Halloween. He's got, he goes so far as to have, like, he's had skeletons on crucifixes in his front yard. Like, we drive by, we're like, that's a little much. That's a little bit much. And, uh, but he's a nice guy. He's a little strange, but he's a nice guy. And, um, 
we walk past his, uh, his house for Halloween. Of course, my kids are like, are we allowed to go there? And I'm like, yeah, we can go. We'll go talk to Mike. And so we walk up, and he has like people that he has as actors like in his yard, like that are the guy with the chainsaw, like, you know, and I'm like, what in the world is wrong with this guy? <laughs> and so um, my kids are a little freaked out, but they want candy. So candy overrides being freaked out. So they get the candy. And um, we see Mike in the neighborhood a lot. And, uh, and man, like when I talk to Mike, he's dropping the F-bomb, the S-bomb, like any kind of bomb he can drop, he's dropping it. And he's just, he's just, that's just what I thought. Like here's a guy who's not a Christian at all. He's not a believer. He can't be a believer really by the way I just hear him talk and act and so on. Um, something else. Every time I see Mike, whether it's 10 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock at night, he's drunk. Almost every time he's slurring his words and can hardly walk straight. His poor dog is like, where should I go? You keep going this way off the street and over here. Like, where should I go? And <laughs> so Mike's a mess. Like, he's a mess, you know. And, um, and see, so the other day I'm out in the yard doing some yard work in the morning, and this guy's drunk at 10 o'clock in the morning again. He walks by my house, and we're talking, and he goes, he's like, hey, so what do you do for a living? And I was like, well, actually, I'm a pastor at a church. I'm a youth pastor. He's like, you're a pastor? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I would never have, you, know, you didn't strike me as a pastor. And I'm like, there's two ways to take that statement. <laughs> Number one, you think I'm not spiritual enough. Number two, you think I'm too cool to be one. So either way, I'm not sure how to take that statement. But um, So he says that to me, and we start talking about after that statement. And uh, at the end of that conversation, he goes, yeah, I go to church over in Belton. And I'm like, man, I've been like praying for a way to kind of witness to you and find a way to share Christ. And I'm like, you already know about him. But then you live like this. Like, I'm, I'm like, what, where do I start with this guy? Like, where do I start with him? And I don't know the answer to that question. But I think what we have in our subculture here in Texas is that we've got this thing called homemade religion down to a science, don't we? We see it everywhere. I'm going to pull from this, pull from that. I'll live like however I want to live, but I'll still call myself a Christian. I'll still go attend church. Let me just say to you right now, if, if the only thing setting you apart from the world is church attendance, that's a problem. That's a problem. So I want to give you four questions as we wrap up, and you guys have your discussions in a few minutes. Here's, some four, here's four questions for you. In what ways do we make our own homemade religion? In what ways do we make our own homemade religion? Number two. In what ways do we ignore God and do what is right in our own eyes? How do we ignore him, what he wants, and do what's right for us? Third question, how do we try to make God more tangible in the same ways that Micah and his mother try to make God more tangible? Fourth question, where do we turn when we feel that Jesus Christ is not enough for us? One last quote by Tim Keller, he says, if we know Jesus is ultimately all we have, we discover that he is eternally all we need. I want to pray for us. God, thanks so much for um, being enough for us where we don't have to try to make you more tangible or create our own set of rules. We thank you so much for being that God who is all that we need for everything, Father. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I know it's late. So pick several of your questions there and go ahead and discuss those at your tables.